Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. So glad that you're here this morning. Well, we're working our way through the book of Philippians, which is an interesting book because uh, Paul is writing under uh, not great circumstances. He, uh, he's actually and literally in, under house arrest uh, in, in Rome, and uh, he'd gotten in some trouble and uh, appealed to Caesar. And so while he's still under, you know, restraint, he does have certain amounts of freedom and and one of those is people can come and go from the house that he's staying in and so his his ministry continues even though he is he is restrained physically the and i love the the last verse of the book of acts talks about how how the lord was uh, or how paul was uh even though he was uh the early church was under a lot of duress and a lot of persecution the word of god went out unhindered and, uh, and so as we're working through Philippians, we notice that regardless of circumstances or issues in Paul's life, he keeps calling upon this idea of joy. And so if you'll join me in Philippians chapter 2, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 in just a moment. Now, in, in, in process of Philippians chapter 1 through 4, and, and understanding joy... This is going to be where we spend our effort of understanding how can Paul experience joyfulness uh, in the midst of less than stellar circumstances. And so the big, there's a huge difference between happiness and joy. Happiness requires selfishness. Now listen, I'm going to be a little bit blunt on this, all right? I'm not going to caress it too much. But in order to be happy, you have to know what you want and you have to have some preferred circumstances. And a lot of times people come to faith thinking that that God's just going to always give them preferred circumstances. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that today. And if, if circumstances aren't the preferred circumstances, then happiness is going to require a little more effort, a certain amount of manipulation, maybe calling in some special favors to work things out. Because at the end of the day, we want to smile on our face. That's how we feel good about ourselves. But joy, on the other hand, is an inner peace, a settled peace regardless of circumstances. It, it, rather than focusing on self at the center, it has God's glory at the very center. And ultimately, that's what we're working through in Philippians. Last week, we, we saw how Paul had less than the best circumstances, right? We had people coming and going in his life. You have guards coming and going in his life. You have, again, captivity, and, and he gets this letter that has a, a couple of issues that you know we're going to work through in the book of Philippians. But, uh, but Paul keeps going back to the, and I don't mean in an apathetic whatever, but Paul has this, regardless of what's going on around me, we can have joy. Regardless of being chained to a guard, you know, the members of Caesar's household greet you. And so I'm not saying that we should never be or desire to be happy. Of course, we should desire to be happy, but not at the expense of God's glory. Not at the expense of God's plan for our life and not at the expense of God's will in our life. And so when you have, you have circumstances or preferred circumstances and selfishness equals happiness, you have, when you have hope and when you have peace, those two things give birth to joy. And I really believe that joy is the ultimate goal of our life. To be at peace with God, to have the hope of a future with Him brings us this settled Joy. In John chapter 15, verse 11, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So he's actually giving us his joy that my joy may be in you. So your joy is his joy and that your joy would be complete. So Jesus came that our joy would be full. But we learned last week circumstances get in the way. So if I, you know, I want you to hear me very, very plainly, that circumstances in a Christian's life determine what caliber of faith they are manifesting. 
So if I have, if I have less than good circumstances, if I have a bad diagnosis or a job change or relationship issues, how I respond to those determine the peace and the joy or the peace and the, and the hope that I have. So last week was circumstances, this week is people, all right? This week is people. So Paul teaches us that these things as he processes joy under house arrest in Rome, awaiting possible execution. And so one of the men from the Philippian church, Epaphroditus, brings a letter to Paul, and in it there are multiple issues. And uh, included, and we don't have the letter, but we do have Paul's responses, so you know, we, we know what some of the issues are. There, were, there was also people news. There were false teachers creeping into the church. There were these two sisters, not blood sisters, but two Christian ladies in the church that were arguing with each other, creating some division in the church. And so Paul teaches us, again, we're getting ready to get started, but Paul teaches us that circumstances do not have to rob your joy. Joy can be higher. Sometimes people can rob your joy too. You know what I mean? Sometimes people can rob you. Boy, there's a lot of heads nodding. Uh, don't look to the right or the left when you say that, all right? Sometimes people can rob your joy. And what Paul says this week is people don't have to rob your joy either. But many times, many times they do. As we briefly saw last week, there were preachers trying to get at Paul, trying to make it harder on Paul. Paul's joy was completely unaffected. Guards chained to him, Paul is unaffected. And, and this week, we will find him unaffected as well. Let's begin reading in verse 1. And by the way, this division that's experienced, being experienced in the church is Paul's motivation for chapter 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So Paul begins by talking about in Christ. If there's any encouragement in Christ, he's writing to the saints who are in Philippi. These are already Christians who are in Christ. In Christ means being in the process of being transformed. This transformation, as he says, any participation in the Spirit, the Spirit's work then begins to produce, what's he say? Affection and sympathy, which is compassion in unity. So this unity means having the same mind. What does it mean to have the same mind? To think alike? Of course not. That's conformity. Conformity looks like, means looking like each other on the outside, Unity looks like looking like each other on the inside, which is why he says it comes from the mind of Christ. Does it mean feeling the same way? No. Unity means having the same love, being in full accord with one mind. Single-mindedness. If you're taking notes, write down. The, the way to overcome circumstances is single-mindedness. In fact, I believe that the first four verses of chapter 2 belongs to the concept of chapter 1. Overcoming unpreferred circumstances is being able to see through the circumstances to the glory of God. We talked a little bit about that last week. But instead of focusing on the issues, seeing what God may be doing at work through the issues, you will never, ever be without the opportunity to give God glory in any circumstance. When your happiness is the goal you're going to clog up a little bit. But when God's glory is the goal, being single-minded, you're going to be able to, to see his glory instead of your circumstance. Okay, that's last week. We're going to get to this week. So Paul says single-mindedness results in unity, love, and selflessness. That's the result of unity, right? I mean of single-mindedness. Unity, love, and selflessness. Okay, so there can be no joy in the life of a Christian who puts themselves first. That's ultimately what Paul says in the first four verses. There can be no joy in the life of a Christian who puts himself first. 
And that's significant for us to realize because if there is joy devoid in our walk with Jesus, if there is joy devoid in our daily walk, the problem may not be the circumstances or the people. The problem may be that we're thinking too highly of ourselves. which, so, you know, to do... Can, can I just cut through the chase on some of this? You, some, some of you prophets are already way ahead of me. Chapter 1, Paul says that the answer to circumstances is Jesus first. In regard to people, the answer is people second. Right? Jesus first, other second, and we'll see later yourselves last. J-O-Y. You see what a great little tool that is in English? It doesn't work in every language, but it works great in English. Jesus first, other second, yourself third. And so what, what Paul is saying here is the remedy for trouble with people is not a single mind, that's circumstances, but the, but the remedy for trouble with people is a submissive mind, unity, placing yourself under. And as you keep working through this part of the letter, you're going to see how Paul lays this out, especially in chapter, in chapter uh, 2. He speaks of the single mind giving way to the submissive mind. Look at, look at verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in what? Humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. So one of the necessary ingredients of joy, where in the world where you would pursue happiness, you, you put yourself first. You consider yourself. But in the kingdom, when you're pursuing joy, you put humility first. You put others first. So one of the necessary ingredients in joy is humility. I think Andrew Murray is the first one who said it this way. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Humility is the one thing on earth that when you know you have it, you don't. Paul talks about this idea of identity, knowing who you are and using it for God's glory and the good of others. This is the point that Paul is making. Having a good sense of self-awareness and bringing that to Jesus and using that to, to build others up. I, I was, as I was thinking through this, I thought of a, like a superhero. If you were to have a superhero that had superhero powers, whatever they may be, what if that superhero, and this may be a terrible illustration, but what if that superhero were to use their powers only for themselves, only for their own good? What we would call this superhero corrupt, would we not? Well, that's a corrupt superhero. Not necessarily a villain, but a corrupted superhero. But I think that we might say the same thing for a Christian that uses God's grace only for themselves. Only. To con I'm not, it's not a salvation issue necessarily. But what I'm saying is why would a Christian who have supernatural powers use the grace that God gives them only to serve themselves? We would call that person corrupt. Paul gave a good definition of what it means to serve others. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about the importance of, you know, Jesus increase and I must decrease and putting others before self. So we have a good idea of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. I'm going to read it to you. For what we proclaim, Paul said, is not, of our, is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. That's a great idea, a great concept of what it means to be a, a, a servant of other people. We're not proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus as Lord, with ourselves as your servant for Jesus' sake. We don't often like sermons on selflessness and servanthood and sacrifice, and it uh, makes everybody a little bit uncomfortable because there's, we, we all have work that we could be doing in that regard. But when we have a single mind, remember what I mean when I talk about a single mind, right? That we're, we're, where our heart beats for the glory of God. That's what I mean when I say a single mind. Our heart beats for the glory of God. I can't see anything else. That's all I'm living for, right? And we may say, well, that's an extreme. Okay, well, let's consider the extreme for a moment. To be able to get to a point 
and, and to be quite honest, maybe it's not that extreme. I'm just sitting here thinking that if we are to have the mind of Christ, then maybe only considering what God wants isn't that outlandish. To be able to get to a point where I want only what God wants. But Paul says that if when we have a single mind, we are devoted to God's glory revealed through us, then the submissive mind come, comes quite naturally or comfortably. Look at verse 5. So you're, you're not going to have a submissive mind until, you know, a sustainable, consistent submissive mind until you first have a single mind. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The mind of God. Phroneo. Phroneo is the Greek word. It means that in his attitude, right? It doesn't mean to only think like he thinks. It means to have the attitudes by which Jesus operated, lining the thoughts up with the feelings so that they produce action. And it's found in present tense, which means that there's never a time in our life where we are not to be having the attitudes and the processes of Christ. Verse 6, Paul says that Jesus was in the form of God. This doesn't mean that he looked like God on earth. It means that the outer shell expresses the inner nature. So that Jesus was in the form of God, meaning that, that Jesus expressed outwardly what the Father is inwardly. Jesus in the form of God. Never one time considered himself. Jesus Christ never made a selfish decision, never acted with his own interest. When he came to earth, he had the mind of the Father in mind. When he came to earth, he, he had a God card that he never one time used for himself. He was equal with God, but did not consider this equality with God something to be selfishly grasped hold of for his own benefit. Can you think of this? The life that Jesus walked, an everyday servant, kicking dust everywhere he goes, not a home, not a family, nothing, didn't even carry his own wallet. Jesus has nothing and never one time used his God card. Equal with God, but laid it down. Not to grasp it. When he left heaven, it was for the glory of God. When he served others, it was for the glory of God. When he died, it was for the glory of God. When he rose, it was for the glory of God. And Jesus said, everything I've done, the Father is, has given it to me to do. And everything that I've said, I've said what the Father has told me to say. Everything for the glory of God. And you say, yes, but that's Jesus. And then Paul tells us to have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. I'll tell you the biggest disconnect between Christians and Christ is Christians is a being a Christian most of the time is a decision that we make one time and we call ourselves by his name. But Paul here says that it is to be is present tense and ongoing in every circumstance of life. In every issue of life, we have the attitude, the thoughts and the feelings that produce actions, the life of Jesus Christ. Who, by the way, as he models submissive-mindedness, he first demonstrated single-mindedness. So first ask yourself, do, does my Christianity truly reflect the glory of God? Is that the way I live? Is that the way I pray? Is that the way I am married? Is that the way I parent? Is that the way I neighbor? Is it the way I work? Is it the way I live my life? Is it the way I spend my money? Is it, is it the way that I watch TV or listen to the radio or interact in any avenue of life? Is the mind of Christ, the glory of God, the thing by which I live for? Compare, compare Jesus, and this, this stings a little. And by the way, I'm, I'm eating my own lunch. But compare Jesus and Satan for just a moment. 
In Scripture, we see Satan grasping for something that wasn't his, right? But Jesus had something and was trying to give it away, not grasping a hold of it. Satan tempted man to grasp for something that wasn't his. Jesus gave man something that belonged to him. Satan said, I will. Jesus said, thy will be done. Many of our thoughts, many of our prayers, many of our desires begin with the concept of I. When we pray, we consider I. We spend time and we spend energy grasping for things that do not belong to us rather than using what he has already given us to build others up. You want to know why there's so little joy in your life? It's because you keep grasping for things that don't belong to you. Because you know what you want your identity to be. You know what you, know what you want your life to look like at the end. And so we, we rush and we hurry and we juggle and we spend only to grasp hold of things that God doesn't have for us. And we wonder where the joy is. When we pray, I, 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 I feel, I think, I want. We begin to think about your words and Jesus' words. Whose mind do you most resemble? In this scenario, the mind of Jesus or the mind of Satan? It's a, it's a big, deep question, but it does beg an answer. Who does your life most look like? An emptying glory of God, others building, or I will ascend? Paul goes on to specify what the mind and the attitude of Jesus looks like. Look at verse 7. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Again, here's this word form. Taking the form, the outer reveals the inner. Remember, Jesus isn't pretending. Jesus isn't pretending. He's taking on the form of a servant. What he is on the outside serving is truly what he was. He wasn't... He wasn't uh, he wasn't give us, giving us just an example. He was in the form of a servant. His heart was the heart of a servant. What Jesus did, Jesus did because it was his attitude. Not just, well, here's how you do that, or let me show you how to wash feet. Jesus' heart was connected to his actions. You know, it's one thing to be philosophical. It's one thing for Jesus to say, serve others. It's one thing for Jesus to say, love others, esteem others, be other-centered. It's quite another thing for him to bend his knee and wash the disciples' feet. It's pretty easy to be philosophical, and on paper, you can look pretty good when you say, what do you believe about Jesus? I believe, check, 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 check. I believe all these things. If, God, if God's Word says it, I believe it. It's really easy to look good on paper. But what we say, what we check our name beside is absolutely meaningless if our do doesn't line up with it. We say, what is the goal of life? And we can say it to help people follow, find and follow Jesus. To make disciples. To love God and to love people. To be for one another. To be for the river valley. But how hard do we have to beg people to serve people? How hard do we have to beg to get people to fall in love with people that you're sitting in the room with? Oh, it's easy to say it. But where are the doers? Because what the Scripture says is, as a result of giving God the glory, the byproduct of that is others. I prove that I love God by how I serve, is what Paul says. Jesus proves that the glory of God was first on the list, only on the list, by how he loved others. In verse 7, but emptied himself with the God card in his hand. Boy, we're good on a resume, though, 
Many Christians struggle in the real. But we're pretty good in the abstract. Things we confess, the things we proclaim, and the things that I think that we probably really do in our minds believe, but our thoughts and our feelings have not lined up to become action. So what happens is, is there's opportunities come around and it's like if our, if our hearts connect with it or if our time connects with it or if our money connects with it or if, if there's some kind of a, if it's convenient for us or if the right people are in the room, then we'll show up for that thing. And then serving just becomes another thing we have to juggle and we have to ask ourselves a ton of questions to see if we want to serve that way, right? We, we consider ourselves before we will commit to serve. And so, believe it or not, serving Christ just becomes another thing that we have to juggle. Something we say no to when it's inconvenient. It becomes a burden. It becomes a guilt. It becomes something that we say, one day I'll be more devoted and I'll give more energy once my current circumstances change. But we've approached serving all wrong and not just us. I'm not just preaching to us, but it is our culture and it's rampant. Submitting and serving isn't something we do. It's the product of something we've done. It's much like the fruit of the Spirit. You don't have to do anything to have the fruit of the Spirit except yes, say yes to Jesus Christ. And the Spirit begins to manifest the fruit of the Spirit in us. As we abide in Him, He produces fruit. You don't have to worry about fruit. You pay attention to abiding in Jesus. This is exactly what Paul was saying. Have the mind of Christ, and when you have this singular mind of Christ, then serving one another, loving one another, affection for one another, unity with one another, all takes care of itself. You see, the submitted mind is proof of the single mind. So one of the things I want you to remember is that, that Jesus always considered others, and he acted. He didn't just consider, he acted, becoming a servant. What, what Jesus thought empowered what Jesus did. Where he had his mind set determined his actions. So, so Paul, Paul processes this out just a little bit. He gives us a couple of things. Look, look at, back at verse 7 and 8. I've already read 7, but I'm going, to read it. I'm going to read it again. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus emptied himself, permanently became a human, used his body as a servant, and fourthly, took that body to a cross and died for us. Paul moves from this single mind to submitting to one another, to serving one another. And now, serving one another becomes sacrificing for one another. Sacrificing. Jesus didn't just serve. He served it all the way through. He didn't just show up to do something. He showed up to give everything. Selflessly serving is the truest expression of transforming into Jesus. Is it not? When you look, if we're to be like Jesus and feel like Jesus, think like Jesus, do like Jesus, then the truest expression of transformation is sacrifice. After 20 25 years of full-time ministry, I'll just say in, in ministry, I have learned that if it doesn't cost, it won't last. If it doesn't cost, it won't last. And I'm not talking about money. I'm not talking about budgets. I'm talking about of us. And I think of, of, of that, I think of what Jesus says, that, that where your treasure is, there will your heart be. So wherever you, wherever you say this is in, wherever you put your heart, that will become, Jesus is saying, wherever you put your heart, it will become your treasure. So some of you might say, I really don't like Christians that much. Well, you ought to try serving some of them because you'll 
as you invest in things, you develop a heart for things. That's what I believe Paul is saying here as well. If you have a submissive mind, the mind of Christ, it requires not only talking about service, but sacrificing to do it. We don't only see Jesus on his knees washing feet. We see Jesus hanging on a cross, laying down his life. Jesus' life and death and resurrection teaches us that submission is about give and take. And it's not the way we think. It's what we take is suffering. And what we give is sacrifice. It's not a, it's not a very popular message today. What we take is suffering. Okay, and I know you're better than that. I know that I'm better than that. When we think about ourselves, it's like, wait a minute, I don't like my name and suffering in the, same, in the same concept. But now I want you to place Jesus in that same statement. What we take is suffering and what we give is sacrifice. Well, it makes perfect sense then, doesn't it? What, it takes is suff- what we take is suffering and what we give is sacrifice. It's not popular, but it's a promise of God and demonstrated, I believe, through the life of Jesus. The more we suffer, the closer he is. The more we sacrifice, the more he blesses. It didn't make sense if you're going to think about it through a a lens that the world gives us. It doesn't make sense if you process it through the flesh. This is why the submissive mind leads to joy. The mind of Jesus leads to joy. When the love for God and His glory is our motive, then we don't even recognize sacrifice and suffering as things to be considered in making decisions for the glory of God. Look at verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What we see here is the benefit of being single-minded leading to being submission-minded. Jesus lays down his life and God the Father exalts him in due time. This is a steady formula throughout all scripture. Go back and look at any any person that that has any time recorded in scripture and you will see this is the formula the single mind leads to the submissive mind and and god exalts them in due season now we do good so that we can be noticed we can get a pat on the back people will appreciate us or approve us or even develop a good reputation and have credibility but when that is our motive then we have already won our prize if your goal is to do good so that somebody will pat you on the back when your pat when your back is patted, congratulations. But I think this is often why our sacrifice isn't worth it. It isn't worth the effort. We'll almost always forego our prize if we can forego our sacrifice. If our motive is selfish, then the sacrifice will never be worth it. But when our motive is selfless, sacrifice becomes a byproduct leading to God's greatest glory. This is why in verse 3, Paul warns us about selfish ambition and conceitedness. These are the greatest barriers in your life that keeps you from having the mind of Christ. Selfish ambition and conceitedness. Paul teaches that Jesus' exaltation began at his resurrection. I love this part. In Jesus' humiliation, and by humiliation I mean his coming to earth and living among us as a servant. In that humiliation, he was given the name Jesus. But when Jesus rose from the dead, he was given the name Lord. Jesus' exaltation gave him complete authority over all the earth. So when Paul says in heaven, maybe he's talking about angels. When he says on the earth, maybe he's talking about alive men. When he talks about under the earth, maybe he's talking about dead men. Or maybe when he says in heaven, he's talking about uh, alive men. And when he talks about under the earth, he's talking about dead men. What difference does it make? What Paul's saying is very, very clear. 
that everyone one day will declare that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, it's one thing to call him Jesus. It's another thing to call him Lord. If you don't hear anything else that I say today, this is the thing that I feel like the Lord gave me and and I really couldn't wait to get to. It's one thing to call him Jesus. It's another thing to call him Lord. What does it mean to call Jesus Lord? Well, you you can call him Jesus and give him a part of your mind. But if you call him Lord... The Greek word kurios, not curious. It's not even where we get it. Kurios. Kurios means because I am his, he gets to decide. That's what the word means. Because I am his, he gets to decide. I am his, he decides. Deciding what? All things. But often, it's whatever parts of myself I've committed to him. That's the part he can have the lordship over. But Jesus must be over all things. This is one of the greatest joy stealers of your entire faith, is when you're unwilling to give Jesus everything. And it's not God not giving you joy. It's that you're not giving him your mind and your heart and your life. The person who surrenders everything to Jesus will serve like Jesus served. Sacrifice like Jesus sacrificed and not keep track. And they will one day be exalted like Jesus. When we bow to him in this life, we will have no problem bending the knee and our hearts to him when he returns to give the glory to God the Father. Because the glory of the Father is all we ever lived for. See, the whole thing's, a, the whole thing's really a paradox. In, in the world, happiness comes from being served, from receiving other people's sacrifices, having as many people as possible below you. That's the goal of greatness. But in the kingdom of God, joy comes from serving and sacrificing because God lifts up like he did Jesus from the tomb. Is that what Jesus had in mind when he said, take up your cross daily? When when Paul says, I die daily, living in daily surrender, daily submission, daily service, daily suffering, daily humiliation for others leads to daily exaltation from the Lord. It's great news on paper. But what does it look like, not for us? What does it look like for you? What does that look like in your home? What does that look like throughout the River Valley as we leave this place as the mind of Christ? What, what does the mind of Christ go and do? Verse 12. Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I love this in verse 13. It is by God which works in you. Think what Paul is saying is, stop working so hard, you're wearing yourself out. All you're doing is stuff, and it's not sustainable. You're so busy, you forget all about the Lord. And I'm telling you, I am 100% guilty of this. 100% of working so hard for God that you forget God. It is God who works these things out in you, not you manifesting them. That's why why our good works are not sustainable because we have to keep digging and keep going and get exhausted and it's just not worth it and those people aren't worth it. And we start judging and accusing and 
making excuses. Paul is saying, you know, you, you, you serve well when I'm around. I'm paraphrasing. You serve well when I'm around, but even more when I'm not there. Make sure that you're doing this. What he's saying is the power to sustain doesn't come from imitating Paul. The power to sustain comes from incarnating Jesus, allowing him to take full control of you. Paul encourages them to obey not to imitate him, but to allow God to work in you. You cannot manifest the Spirit in the flesh. It's what Paul taught, taught the church at Ephesus in chapter 4. He gave them a list of to-dos, big to-dos, big, big, like, character to-dos. But in chapter 5, he begins with saying, Therefore, imitate God and walk in love as Christ. It's the same thing. The mind of Christ doesn't come from trying to act like Paul or obeying Paul. Having the mind of Christ comes from being with Jesus. And in me means through me. The mind of Christ begets action. It isn't simply thinking. It requires action. It comes in and it goes out. The word, I believe, is through. It works through me. And as I submit to God, his mind allows me the grace to submit myself to others. And I become more like Jesus. And they're able to see Jesus through me. And I lay my life down, and one day I will ex be exalted by him in my own resurrection. Look back at verse 12. Paul's been clear that the work doesn't, the work of the submitted mind, Jesus does the work of it. But he also says that we need to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, wait a minute. We work or God works? He says, God works in you, but now you work out your own salvation. What does Paul mean by work out your own salvation? Well, I'll be quite honest with you. We love this verse. It means just figure it out for yourself. Whatever salvation means, whatever God leads you to do, whatever God leads you to believe, just do that. Just make sure you're consistent with it, and I'm sure it'll work out. Now, obviously, the church is already saved. He's already called them saints. Paul isn't saying, though, that everyone gets to work things out on their own. They don't, everyone doesn't get their own path to salvation. They don't get to choose what Jesus said and what Jesus didn't say to them. He isn't saying that we should work out our own way or follow our own desire or choose for ourselves. Working it out doesn't mean to live as it suits you. He is referring here to the salvation of the mind. The salvation of the spirit has already taken place. He's talking about our daily sanctification. He says, work it out day by day. Work it out. Not, hmm, work out your own salvation. What he's saying is, it's like in, in Paul's day, it's like working out a mathematical problem, right? It's like, here's the formula, work it out. Except in the case of our faith, it's like this mathematical problem keeps having a different algorithm. So we have to keep working it out because things keep changing in our life as we process distractions, circumstances, people. Keep working it out. In fact, that's what he says. It's a present tense to keep working it out because you'll never get it worked out. In Paul's day, it was used for working in a mine where you would go down into a mine and you would work out of the mind everything that is valuable. Work it out. Get everything out you can. Or, or sometimes it would be used of working in a field like a farmer. Get as much harvest as possible. This is what Paul is saying to them. You have the mind of Christ. Keep working it out. Keep digging. Keep processing with fear and trembling because it's a big deal. Selfish minds will give up as quickly as they can. As soon as there is discomfort, as soon as there is resistance. Submissive minds, though, will continue until all the glory can be wrung out for the glory of God. Submissive minds keep digging. Selfish minds give up pretty quick. And with Christ in us, we have this tremendous potential to display Jesus' mind in a world that has never seen it. And so we should keep working it out, digging deeper and deeper. And Paul makes it personal too. He said, work out your own salvation. 
God has a personal plan for our life. We should pay personal attention to how we can work out his value in us and through us. There's no benefit. There's no hitchhikers. You don't get the benefit just because you're close to someone working it out or because you know someone who is working it out. It's very personal. Work out your own salvation. Don't settle for being some cheap imitation of someone else's salvation. Keep mining individually and settle for only seeing Jesus magnified in your life. Verse 14. He kind of shifts gears here too. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. You know, the world, so now he's taking like Jesus compared to you and now you compared to the world. The world finds complaints and finds faults, but Jesus, but Christians rejoice. The world is twisted, but Christians stand straight. The world is dark, but Christians shine bright. The world has nothing to offer, but Christians add hope and peace, bringing joy. Paul is very clear here. The mind of Christ is so easy to see when you compare it to the way of the world. You know, we're all full of excuses for not having the mind of Christ. We only seem to wait for a, a better opportunity. Well, once I'm married, well, once I'm, uh, once I'm a parent, once my children are grown, once I this, once I that, there's another opportunity coming that will give me better circumstances. And we need better politicians. We need a better government. We need more freedom in our country. We need a better economy. We need more time. I need a different job. I need a different family. Or I'll tell you what, just add excuse here. There's only some reason why we can't have the mind of Christ in this current circumstance. But look here at verse 5, or verse 15 rather. He says, in the midst of a crooked and perverse world. True Christians aren't allowed to retreat or wait until there's a more opportune time. We're commanded to constantly be working it out. Constantly be working it out. When the world is the most divided, when the world is the most crooked, when it's the most perverse, when it's the darkest, that's when the mind of Christ is most clearly contrasted. But sadly, the church looks so much like the world, it's hard to tell the difference unless you're in this room or on paper. We really shine on paper. You know who else shined on paper? The Pharisees. Oh, they looked good on paper, did they not? They had become so insulated and so protected and so isolated from the real world, they became self-righteous. And when someone showed up to point out their self-righteousness, they got angry when they were confronted with the accusation. Or on the flip side, so many Christians are indistinguishable from the crooked and perverse generation they live in. Perhaps most are willing to claim the name of Jesus in his humiliation, but have not made him the Lord of their life. But true submission is the difference. The mind of Christ is the difference. The glory of God is the difference. And when you are submitted to God, the primary manifestation of that is true submission to each other. When you serve him, it's proven by how you serve others. But many Christians have become so insulated and have so protected themselves that they've become self-righteous Pharisees pointing fingers at the world that we're called to serve and sacrifice for. It's ministering to the brokenness that reveals the mind of Christ. In serving the undesirable of this world, we find God's purpose in our lives and therefore, we find joy.
But Jesus must work in us before he works through us. Look at verse 16. Paul gives us the final word for the day, the resources for our power. How can you have the mind of Christ that produces all this? Listen to what Jesus said in, in John 15. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So first, we have to surrender to Christ. Number two, surrender to each other. Three, Christ's power working in us and through us. And finally, verse 16, the word of God. Holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain and labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. The word of God. Spending time here, Paul calls it the word of life. The word that we are to devote ourselves to. Not to be conformed by the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind by laying ourselves down as living sacrifices. Here's what Paul is saying. That that there is a joy and there is a rejoicing that comes in the hereafter. He talks about joy and pride that will be his when Jesus returns in everlasting life. All the submission will be worth it in that day. All of the labor that goes in, all the mining that goes into working out your salvation, the mind of Christ will be worth it in that day. And that's what's meant in regard to Jesus. He endured all things for the hereafter goal. You remember what, remember what the writer of Hebrews says? But for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Remember that? A life of service, sacrifice, Glorifying God equals eternal joy. But verse 17 and 18, he also says, we don't have to wait for that joy. You can have joy in the here and now. He says, even if now I'm going to be poured out as a drink offering. This drink offering is something that we first find in Genesis chapter 35. I'm not going to teach all about this. But in Genesis 35, when, when God changes Jacob's name to Israel, there is a drink offering here that is poured out. This was before the Mosaic law. There's a drink offering poured out. And, and then later, this is a, a perpetual sacrifice that is offered uh, at the sacrifices. And so this, it's kind of like it creates this aroma to God. It's like, it's like provide, providing a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. It's this, it's this wonderful sacrifice. A, uh, it's a metaphor for, for providing God food. It, uh, Jesus also used it in the upper room when he is establishing the new covenant. And so what Paul is saying is in this here and now, if I'm being asked to pour my life out as a drink offering, if God be pleased, there's joy and rejoicing even now. I don't have to wait for eternity to have joy. It's ironic in a verse that talks about service and sacrifice and suffering that Paul uses the words gain, joy, rejoice. And then in the very next verse, he repeats them. Most people think of suffering leads to pain, to sorrow, but not for the submissive mind in the kingdom of God. The more you give, the more of him you receive. It's because of this that so many Christians have been neutralized in their faith, or they've been hardened. Saved enough to potentially miss hell, but not submitted enough to have true joy. And it takes faith to believe that, does it not? Because that just doesn't compute in our world. That to give is to get. To humble is to be exalted. It's a completely different way of thinking, so we have to exercise our faith to have it. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. A lot of information today, but information is... Not much without what do I do. So today as we evaluate where you sit, to evaluate 
your surrender, your submission to the Lord. I do believe that a person can be saved by acknowledging Jesus. I'm not, I'm not talking only about your salvation this morning, although that may apply to some of us. But I think that we have made it far too easy for people to feel surrendered because they've prayed a prayer at some point in their life. But when you look at the scripture and you see what Jesus has done, you see something completely other than that. This wholehearted surrender and sacrifice this truly having, listen, it doesn't take a preacher or a prophet to get us to understand that our lives are running counter to the mind of Christ. Grasping hold of things that God has not given us. Unrelentingly pursuing things that are not kingdom. And we're frazzled and we're tired and we're worn out. And I'm not blaming COVID anymore. I think COVID just simply exacerbated the issue that was already there. If joy is the perfect illustration, if that is the proof that you're right with God, evaluate the proof. I'm not trying to talk you out of faith. I'm trying to get us to understand joy. I'm trying to get me to understand joy. Because I'm tired. And I know you're tired. There's a lot of our faith that we can perform in the flesh, but there's a lot that, that we cannot. It manifests eventually. And there may be a time in your life when you were fully devoted on fire for the Lord and now we're just imitating some of the best Christians we know. It's not enough, folks. It only brings emptiness. You're on the wrong trajectory. And you can fool the person you're living with and you can fool the people you worship with, but you know inside of you, you are not living in the joy of the Lord. It's an odd thing that joy doesn't come from just making a decision. Joy comes from selflessly sacrificing, willing surrender to always looking for the glory of God. So before we even stand, I want to ask you if, if joy is something that maybe you're missing in your walk, in your day, maybe circumstances are robbing you, Maybe people are robbing you of joy. Will you just slip your hand up and say, Pastor, pray for me. I, I, I don't have joy in my walk with Jesus. I see all those hands. All over the room, just keep coming up. You can put your hands down. Pastor, I, I know I want to have joy. I just don't even know how to get started. Maybe you're here today and you've never given, truly given your life to Jesus. You've never made him, oh, he's Jesus. He's, he's a person that lived. He's a person that died. He's a person that resurrected. But he's not the Lord of your life. Would you slip your hand up and just say, Pastor, pray for me. I know that Jesus is not the Lord of my life. I want him to be, but I know that he's not. Anybody be bold enough to, to say that this morning? Let's all stand together. Lord, we ask that your spirit would, uh, would quicken us today. We pray that your word would do it. We pray that, that you would have, have your way through us. It would manifest by how well we love and serve each other, but that how well we serve and love each other manifests in how we love and serve a crooked and perverse generation out there. 
I'm going to ask Chris if you will, will sing. And if, if maybe there's some things in your life you know today that you need to repent of, there's things that you know that's causing you to juggle your faith instead of devote yourself to it, I'm going to ask you to come and to kneel and to bow the knee and to confess Jesus as Lord. Will you be willing to do that today? Don't settle for just calling him Jesus. Make him the Lord of your life today. Experience his joy to the full. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.